Talk features thought leadership interviews with community banking and credit union executives on relevant banking topics. If you are that CEO or would like to be an executive one day, this is the podcast for you. The most downloaded podcast in the community banking space, Bank Talk promises that you will learn something new in each episode to improve the performance at your financial institution. And now, here's our host, Charlie Kelly. Hi, and welcome to Bank Talk. This is Charlie Kelly, your host and partner at Remedy Consulting. Today, we're talking family banking. More specifically, we're talking about Kearney County Bank. Bob is going to join us. Bob's a former CEO, uh, really just has an interesting family history that we talked about a while ago. I've been meaning to do this podcast because there are so many community banks out there that have either a strong family influence or started were started by a specific family. And so I think this is just a really interesting story of you know, how one of our community banks got started. So without further ado, we'll, uh, we'll join Bob with Bank Talk. So welcome back to Bank Talk. Today I have with me Bob Beamer. Bob, thanks for joining us, first of all. Good to talk to you, Charlie. When you and I first talked, you were the CFO of Kearney County Bank. Uh, at the time, your brother was running the bank and you were just taking over the role of the CEO. Can you give us, just give us a little family history around how you and your brother came to be a part of the, of the bank? Uh, my brother started uh, with the Kearney County Bank in 1976. He was the second in command, basically was the cashier of the bank. And uh, at the time, the bank probably had about 10 or $15 million in assets, maybe somewhere between six and eight employees. I was still in college at the time when Gary uh, began at the bank. In 1980, the bank was, was on a, actually in 1979, the bank uh, received notice from their data processing company that they were going to go out of business. So the bank did an exhaustive search on finding a, a solution to handle their data processing needs. And they decided to purchase the NCR Banker 80 platform, which is basically an in-house solution. And on the day that they signed the contract for the Banker 80 software and, and computer system, the CEO at the time, uh, whose name was Dick Lucas, he passed away of a heart attack that night. I had, by that time, I had since graduated from college and was working for the state of Kansas as a bank examiner. I had had about 19 months uh, under my belt as a bank examiner. And at the time, my dad was uh, one of the board members. And about three or four days after Mr. Lucas passed away, dad called me up and says, I need to need to have you come home. Gary's taking over as the CEO of the bank. And we need you to be the cashier of the bank, run this new computer system. And uh, I think I was tapped for that job because I had probably 10 hours of computer science classes <laughs> at Kansas State University. Sure. And who better than at that point, right? You sound well right. qualified. Right. Probably my better training was my 19 months as a bank examiner. 
<laughs> that's great. That's a uh, that's great. Let's let's jump back into the into the fifties. So you had said that the your dad and his partners acquired what was left of Deerfield and Kearney. Kearney had Big. picked up the assets of Deerfield, right? Right. Okay. And so then what was the name of your dad's bank that was Garden City Bank and that acquired uh, Kearney County? Or uh, the Kearney County Bank, it, it's always been the Kearney County Bank since uh, 1888. But the part that your your dad and his partners got into by coming into the Kearney County Bank, right? They had a different bank prior to that? Do I have that right? No, they did not. The controlling interest of the Kearney County Bank was owned by principals who owned the Garden National Bank. At the time, Kansas was a unit banking state. Basically, the owners of the Garden National Bank, they apparently weren't doing real great here, and they decided to divest their interest. And so uh, my dad and his two partners came in and and purchased uh, the controlling interest. And right after they bought, the controlling interest in the bank. There was another bank in in Lakin that was called the Lakin State Bank, and they bought it out and merged it into the Kearney County Bank as well. So that's how the assets started growing. From in the seventies, you were at ten to fifteen million, and right now your uh, Kearney is quite a bit larger than that, right? Right. Well, in the fifties when they bought it, I bet the assets weren't more than a million dollars. One other thing that we talked about was uh, Beamer and Beamer, and so Beamer and Beamer has a little bit of history as well. And that, that kind of goes back to your grandfather's days as the attorney. Right. And I, I, is, was he the attorney of Kearney County? Give us a little bit of that history, if you don't mind. So my grandfather, I'm going to give you the full history on my grandfather. He was born and raised in Iowa. And uh, in the late 1880s was when he was born. And he moved out to Southwest Kansas settled in Haskell County, which is about 40 miles to the southeast of Kearney County. At that time, he became rural school teacher, and he was also the county clerk in Haskell County, and that's where he met my my grandmother, and she was a school teacher down there as well. And uh, they, they moved away from Haskell County in 1920, and they moved out to California for a while, and I believe my grandfather managed a, a lumber yard out in California. And apparently that didn't work, work out. And they moved back to Southwest Kansas. And the reason they moved back out here, because land was relatively inexpensive out here. And so my grandfather always had a desire to purchase land. And so they felt that was the best opportunity for them to acquire land was to move out here. When he moved here, he went and took the, the law boards. He became a lawyer. He was a self-taught lawyer. And out of this office, Beamer and Beamer, they they operated a, a law office and a title company. Interesting. In the 30s, uh, during the dirty 30s, many people who had homesteaded land out here in the early 1900s, the government allowed people to homestead land and gave them 160 acres free for them to homestead this land. And uh, with severe economic downturn in the 30s, those people that were homesteading basically couldn't afford to live any longer. Uh, Farm commodity prices were bad and we had drought conditions back then. My grandfather uh, 
was able to acquire a lot of land from people that were leaving their homesteads or many, many people had mortgaged their land to the bank and my grandfather helped foreclose on it. And in, in some cases, he'd end up buying the land from the bank. So that's how he began acquiring land out here. How, how much did he end up with? Well, that, that's a good question. Uh, it's kind of interesting. My grandfather has has four ledger books that has every dollar he, sent, he spent from the mid-1920s all the way to the date he passed away in 1979. Wow. And so I can look through there and find out all the land that he he bought but he was he was buying and selling land It'd be really tough to figure that one out I, I assume that some of this remains in the family uh yes uh we own over twenty three thousand acres of land and uh that land is spread over four counties that are surrounding kearney county grant hamilton greeley and some in finney and uh, the other interesting part of the story that you and I were talking about is is it's more than just farmland these days, right? I, I was right. kind of looking at some of the maps and sounds like there's a, there's a, some gas oil type things going on out there. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Right. So the Southwest Kansas is the location of the Hugan gas field. And when it was discovered, it was the probably the world's largest natural gas field. And it extends from probably nearly the northern uh, border of Kearney County and extends all the way down into the Texas Panhandle. Uh, Hugoton is basically the center of the field, and that's where the first wells were were drilled back in the 30s. And, that was when uh, it was 1930s. That's when they were starting to find. That's correct. Basically, uh, there's at least in the primary areas of the of the Hugoton gas field. There's at least three gas wells in every section from uh, northern Kearney County all the way down into the Texas Panhandle. The field is quite mature. Um, the production has gone way down from what it was back in the uh, the heyday. The field was in the 60s and 70s where the production was really being ramped up. And that's, you know, after World War II, there's a big need for for energy uh, nationwide. Um, and this area basically attracted pipeline companies and they built compressor stations in the area to push uh, natural gas to the Chicago, Kansas City, Denver, all over the United States. The way the, the, way the oil and gas business works is uh, there's real estate, there's, there's surface rights, there's mineral rights, and basically the surface owners at the time, they owned the entire state, the surface and the minerals. And so the, the oil and gas production companies engaged basically landmen. And my grandfather and my dad and my uncle, after World War II, they're very involved in acquiring uh, oil and gas leases in Kearney County. Basically, they would offer to buy the leases or lease, they would get leases from from the landowners, and they would turn around, and the landowners would get a royalty interest in any future production. Of course, when they when they lease the land, they had to they had to make rental payments to the to the landowners, which were, were quite small at the time. Most oil and gas leases have a three year term, and the only way that the the term the initial term of the lease can be 
extended is is if there's active production developed on the land. And so there are leases that are in effect that go back to the 30s that are still producing. And so the landowners and and their the royalty owners they're still receiving the the income off off those properties for the last 70 70 to 80 years wow and so are you you're paid only if there's a well on the land is that how that works i'm thinking about this big you know gas field underneath everybody's property sort of right and so, uh you know whether or not you can get to that that basin is uh, what based on how much um, how much rock is between <laughs> the field, or what? Uh, yeah, give us just a little a little uh, flavor around who gets a well on their land and who gets a lease. Back in the days, I don't. I'm not sure how they really knew where to drill. I did hear an interesting presentation recently by uh, how the the oil fields around El Dorado, Kansas, were developed. And back in those days in the 30s, um, 20s, actually is in the early 1900s, the geology was not very good. And they discovered that certain geologic formations gave an indication of where oil and gas was present. And that was the advent of, of the Kansas, probably the world's largest producer of oil uh, during World, world War I. And basically, Kansas helped help the U.S. win the World War One uh, because of the energy that was found here. The geology started getting better, and they the uh, geologists started figuring out where where they would be able to find oil and gas, and so that led them out here to Southwest Kansas because apparently we had geologic formations that were indicative of the potential for production out here, and so they started drilling wells and. They hit a bunch of gas out here. Nowadays, when they explore for gas, they're doing seismic testing. They have big machines that go across land, and they they send seismic waves down into the ground, and they can see uh, with these seismic tests if there's any potential production for oil and gas. That is really interesting how the science has come along. I, you know, I always thought about it as just one big pocket. If they could punch into it from any any direction, it's probably not that. It's probably a, a, a variety of pockets, the way the way it sounds. It's a variety of pockets that you might be able to get into from one landowner's, but maybe not necessarily from somebody else's. That's always been the the battle on on the development of the legal the Huguenin field is uh, nobody wants to steal gas from the guy that owns the land next door. And so they, the state of Kansas, the Kansas Corporation Commission has jumped in and developed rules for well spacing and, and so forth so that the mineral owners' interests are protected and also that the producers' interests are protected as well from other companies that are drilling on adjacent lands. Oh, interesting. No, that is, it makes a lot of sense that they would have, they would have rules around, around how they tap into it if they, it could, you know probably in all cases, crosses property lines, right? The the field underneath crosses property lines in most scenarios, I guess is what I'm saying. Bob, this has been fascinating. Uh, you know, again, just a ton of family history, which is great. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to cover here before we finish up? I mean, it's just been, you know, to me, I, I always find this stuff so interesting because, you know, like the Beamer family, everybody's got an interesting family history. You know, maybe not not as interesting from a banking perspective as yours is, but anything else we should cover before we finish up? 
Well, when when the bank started, uh, I bet there's only three people back in 1888 that were working in the bank, and uh, I think they, I believe they started the bank with ten thousand dollars in capital, and is is an investor group that came out from Indiana, I believe, hmm. and um, they sold out to various local interests and. So over the years, there's there's been quite a number of different owners, but uh, the interesting thing about our ownership structure structure is that I'm related. My brothers and I are related to almost everybody who's a stockholder in the bank, except for two or three individuals. Mm-hmm. And uh, wow. that came about with yeah, you know, your mother's side of the family as well as the father's side, I yeah. suppose, right? Yeah. The interest the my mother's side of the family are. Very, very few of them remain in the area. One interesting individual uh, on my mother's side, first cousin of my mother, he ended up becoming the chairman and CEO of Massey Ferguson, which is now International Harvester. Oh, wow. Really? Interesting. And, and they, <laughs> they all live in Florida and New York now. Wow, that's great. All right, Bob. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate you spending a little bit of time with us on the podcast here. And um uh, just thanks, thanks for taking the time and sharing your story. All right. Take care. It's a pleasure talking to you, Charlie. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Bob. Okay. Well, I wanted to once again thank uh, Bob Beamer for joining us. I, I find these family stories so interesting only because there's just so much there, right? Uh, there's, <laughs> you know, what uh, we, I, I think it's very important that we don't forget the people that came before us. So, so that's it for Bank Talk once again. This is Charlie Kelly, your host. Have a good day and keep on learning. Thank you for listening to the Bank Talk podcast brought to you by Remedy Consulting. If you would like to be a presenter on the Bank Talk podcast, please reach out and go to banktalkpodcast.com. And we will see you in the next episode.